BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to Cop Father. I am Craig Brumell. Joining us today is Rob Cribb. Rob is an investigative reporter at the Toronto Star. He has received national reporting awards and citations for investigations into offshore tax evasion, child exploitation, human trafficking, dangerous doctors, environmental threats, and public safety. Rob was part of the international reporting team that produced the Pulitzer Prize-winning Panama Papers investigation back in 2017. And I call a good friend I've known for years, big big shot reporter, and a, a good buddy of mine. How you doing? Yeah, man, good. How you doing? Yeah, it's it's good. Listen, a couple of things I want to touch with you. Uh, you just put out the article on the human trafficking in the, in the Star back on the twenty uh, second of February, and I know, and together, we've uh, we've spoken to a lot of police officers. You've been working on this for years, haven't you? How long have you been working on this side of? Oh, trafficking. I don't know, man. Like. Like 20 years. I, I remember coming to you early early on asking for contacts, the cops working in trafficking. Um, it had to be at least 10, 15 years ago. And it's a, like a constant beat, I guess. It, it's a story that never ends, unfortunately, and it's dark and, and dirty. And it's one of those stories that, you know, it's hard to tell. It's a tough nut to crack always. And it's one of the reasons we don't talk about it nearly enough in this country. It's hard. It's hard to get at it. Journalists um, typically don't do real in-depth work on it, not because we don't want to, but, you know, with time pressures and deadlines, it's not the kind of story that you can turn around real quick. It takes weeks, some months sometimes, and, and you know, I've been hammering away at it for years because um, it is designed, it is an industry designed, as you know, to be incredibly secretive. Um, the threats against the victims are such that they're terrified usually to, to talk to anybody, including cops and certainly journalists. It's just a ton of work hammering away to, to get it, um, to get enough to, to tell a compelling story. So the one uh, last week was just the good fortune of a, a really incredible, courageous um, former victim who was trafficked, sex trafficking, and, and she's reached a point in her life where she's now talking about it. And, you know, through her, you can tell the much larger story. The, the narrative is much bigger. And But through her story, you can tell the story of hundreds of thousands of others, you know. So the most striking thing about that whole issue to me is the extent to which, the, you know, Canadians have no concept this is happening. You know, that it just feels, I think, to most people like this thing that happens somewhere else. 
or to people from somewhere else who are brought here. But, you know, overwhelmingly, the victims of this crime are Canadians who, you know, live 10 houses down from us. 97% of victims are young women and girls, you know, as young as 13 years old, probably younger. But I've, I've certainly come across numerous cases where there was 13-year-old victims. Um, and, you know, we, we, we hear the stories anecdotally. Um, now and again, there'll be charges laid, but it is really the tip uh, of the iceberg, and any police officer will tell you this. It's not an it's not an issue that garners a public, a huge public resonance, and therefore it also isn't the kind of issue that gets a big chunk of the police budget. And this isn't me saying this; this is police officers yep. saying it. Yep. There's a tiny number of units in this country that are devoted to trafficking, and and as a result, it, it doesn't get the kind of um, cases. So there's been like. According to Stats Canada, like 1,700 cases on the public record, um, but everybody agrees that it's that's a tiny, tiny percentage of what the real numbers are for a whole bunch of reasons. But one of them is, you know, if there isn't public awareness, that means there's no public pressure, which means there's no um, impetus for budgets to be expanded and, and um, devoted to this kind of thing. And, and so then what happens? Nothing. Yeah, it's noble work. There's no question, and it's the kind of work that you don't do from nine to five. You know, this is this is the kind of work that bleeds into your life and into your consciousness, and kind of work that wakes you up at three in the morning thinking about, okay, what am I going to do here? And so, yeah, I've I've actually become really close with officers um, who do this kind of work in in a couple of cases, only because there is this kind of strange sort of professional connection because so so few people uh, have a lens inside this world and it is so intense and dark it, inevitably um, you end up uh, telling stories and and sort of sharing the human experience of working in this in this area I guess I feel kind of a a fraternity with um, and a sorority, I suppose, with officers. Many of them are f female officers. Some of the best in the business are female officers for a whole bunch of reasons, I think. But um, yeah, I've, I've I've come to deeply respect that particular area of police work. Yeah. Well, they they're uh, they've told me they're just as impressed with you when it comes to the effort you put into this because whether child exploitation or human trafficking, your investigation reporting is pretty much taking all over the world, right? I mean, that's nice of you to say, buddy. It it does feel like slamming your skull against the brick wall most of the time. You know, these, these stories take, as I say, take extraordinary amount of time and effort. And I'm blessed to work in a place like the Star that allows me to do that. Most places wouldn't, you know. But, you know, you publish them and, of course, you, you feel like you're you're doing something good and that you're making a contribution. And, and um, at, at the very least, you're raising public public awareness and consciousness but you know i can't point to any any stories in this area of like trafficking that like have changed the law or public policy or inspired political reaction you know sometimes you know i've, I've been lucky enough to work on stories that have that have done that you know that have had real direct cause and effect impact on meaningful change but this one, maybe because it's just so pervasive and difficult and, and the, the criminals in this case are so sophisticated, 
you know, who knows? And of course, you know, and, until there's public outrage, there's not going to be public reaction. But you know, it, it part of part. It's a bittersweet kind of beat in the sense that you you do feel a great deal of mission in terms of telling these stories. But you know, I can't say I've changed anything. I can't I can't really say that it's led to any great uh, revelations or or um, or change, you know, the kind of change that I want to see. It's 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 still filthy and and expansive and notorious and exploitative, and it seems just seems to get more and more so all the time. Was there a common denominator you found with the victims when it came to their family life? Uh, was there something that would get them? onto the streets i prime i believe most of the time they're on the streets and they get picked up by let's call them pimps right to me it's the best word for these guys that are doing this the, the suspects but are, yeah. did you find there was something common with their lives the victims you know it's it's interesting no it's all over the map right but but here's the thing that i've learned is it's not what you think it is most of the time the, the image that you have of who these young women are and girls it's it's often very frequently not what you think they're not on the street most of the time they're living in the suburbs in middle class families and they get targeted so you know the social media is one way um if they're laying out their vulnerabilities and sensitivities about their lives online they become easily easy prey for sophisticated uh, criminals who who are really smart, like there is a study in this, the, the psychology they use to listen, to be supportive, to understand um, the, the sensitivities and vulnerabilities, and then to fill that need. The, the most common sort of strategy I've seen in the work I've done is what they call the Romeo pimp, right, which is which, which comes on as a boyfriend. It's a boyfriend approach, you know? You're lovely, I care about you, I wanna help you. Um, here's how I can help you. Um, here's gifts, here's come, you know, if you wanna leave your parents, come come stay in my condo. You know, it's, it's a very, very warm and charming approach. That's how it starts out. Yeah, that's how it starts out, yeah. And, it, and it's very effective, it's a very effective, and these are not idiots. You know, these are not these are not dumb guys. These are smart guys who have studied the handbook, which actually exists. Yeah. At some point, there's a pivot. Uh, how much of it is organized crime, or is these just individuals making a buck on the side? It's a, it's a great question, and and I don't even think the police have a have a real firm grasp on on that. Uh, to some extent, it has to be. It has to be uh, an organized crime connection, but. You know what I mean? It's really hard to prove because there are definitely sole proprietors or what appear to be sole proprietors who are doing this work. Their networks are often, um, or assistants or their posse tend to be, in many cases, women uh, for a whole bunch of, again, sophisticated reasons. They make a softer approach. Young girls and vulnerable women might, might be far more receptive to um, a female approach or at least the support of a female um, alongside the, the Romeo. But to the extent to which it's all networked, led by a guiding hand or a guiding mind is, is unclear, I think. And it's not the kind of thing that tends to be disclosed or offered up easily by by those who face um, 
charges to the extent that they do face charges. Any certain nationality when it comes back to the victims? Um, or is it just not all over really, the map? Not really. Not in the stuff I've done. It's it's all over the map. Yeah. It really is all over the map. And again, it's it's often just Anglo-Saxons from Mississauga. Right. You know, it's it, it's not it's not the TV Hollywood kind of portrait. Uh-huh. At least in in Toronto, the stuff that I've seen. Does that stuff exist? Yeah, for sure. But at the street level, which is ultimately what we see, right? We don't often see the puppeteer um, pulling the strings. What we see is the guys that get charged. So, Rob, you've also worked on uh, child exploitations, and it was more of an international affair. There are situations that were happening in Toronto, but this is t- this took you over to Europe as part of your investigation, and you know another horrific storyline here. Again, what people don't want to talk about, but the reality is things that are happening here are occurring all over the world, especially in Europe and all that. Yeah, Toronto's often been become a hub for a lot of this material. There's there's a that that story, that Romanian story, was was one of the most haunting stories I've ever done. I, I still think about it all the time. Um, it, it started in Toronto. It was just a guy in Toronto who got charged for running a, a website selling um, essentially child pornography. And um, so I started looking into him, and it turns out he's sort of the mastermind. But all of the content, or much of the content, was not here. It was overseas. He had photographers that he basically commissioned to shoot this video. And that led me to this guy named Marcus Roth, who was a you know, convicted child pornographer in Germany, fled to Romania, um, started up a karate school in the middle of nowhere, tiny villages in northern Romania by the Ukraine border. And so he recruited these young boys through this facade of a karate school. And he connects with the Toronto website guy and basically they strike a deal for for these videos and a steady supply of these videos end up on a server in toronto which toronto police eventually investigated but the romanian angle was fascinating to me so i i basically asked my editor if i can just get on a plane and go to romania i had no like i I don't speak the language i had no particular context i didn't even know where these boys were I, i had a general region and I had a Romanian journalist friend, and I called him, and I said, can you help me? We're just going to get in the car and go and see. And thankfully, my editor said, yeah, let's mm-hmm. go. And <laughs> so I went, and we basically went to courthouse to courthouse looking for records, anything we could find. We had pictures of, of houses in the region, so we tried to figure it out. It was total deduction. And then after about three days of driving around, we finally found this road and it looked exactly like um, one of the photos. We stopped, got in the road and said, you know, is this where so-and-so lives? And he said, yeah, it's just up the street. And it led to interviews with, um, I think, I think eight or 10 of the boys who had been in these videos that the Toronto police had been staring at for a year, not knowing where they were or who they were. And, um, so I did the, did those interviews and came back and did a, a detailed look at the pipeline of, of child pornography from 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 Romania back to a server in Toronto, which then got sold to customers around the world. It was a fascinating piece. 
and ultimately we ended up being one of the largest porn busts ever at the time by the Toronto cops. It was all headquartered um, out of Toronto. And it's, it's to this day, I hear from a couple of them and um, I think about them all the time. I mean, it, their lives, they were utterly decimated. They never really recovered. They're, you know, these are young boys in a but small you, they village. Were sa- they were saved, right? They were saved. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. a lot of credit to you, buddy. I mean, that's the end result of what the work you do is that, you know, it, it, it's a topic people are afraid to talk about. Very, very unpleasant, but it has to be spoken about in a public forum to get to the results that you've gotten to, which you should get all the credit in the world for, along with the Toronto police, because you work together with them. We were embedded, yeah. We, I worked behind the scenes with them. We were able to see follow the investigation, and then we all went off and did kind of our own. Um, and so, and then ultimately the stuff I got in Romania ended up being submitted in court as, as wow. part of the proceedings. It was fascinating. So it was both a satisfying story to tell, but also, you know, utterly devastating. Yeah. There's, uh, joy in it. Uh, let's go on to the Panama Papers. Um, I actually just watched yeah. the documentary. Talk about your involvement, how you started it out, what, what came about, because you were a, a big role in it. Uh, from, I guess, the Canadian perspective of this. This is a massive yeah. undertaking. Who approached you and how, how did you get involved with uh, something like this? Won all kinds of awards, properly so, put a lot of people away. Prime ministers, uh, you know, not just gangsters, but there was a lot of things going on that shouldn't have been. So how did you start into that? Phone call? I got a phone call, man. Um, I do a lot of international work, collaborative work with other journalists, and there's, there's sort of a club of us who all like to work together because a lot of journalists don't. They just don't. They're lone wolves, and they they don't particularly want to work with other journalists. But I learned a little while ago that it's just far better to team up and um, combine forces and brain power and reporting and share because ultimately, if you're in it to tell the best story, you're going to get the best story that way. So you got to set aside ego and bylines and that nonsense and actually decide that what's best for the journalism and ultimately, it's almost always better to team up. So I'd work with a bunch of these people and, and uh, it was it was a group called the International Consortium for Investigative Journalists They're based out of Washington and they got this leak which was the biggest leak ever in the history of leaks. And they were assembling a team of reporters around the world because there was 11 million documents touching every country. Um, and there was no way any one organization was ever going to handle it. Uh, so they called me. They said, we want you in and we want the star in and we're going to have a meeting in Berlin and we want you to come. And, and at the time, like, I didn't really get it. And like, I, I thought, it sounds really interesting, but I didn't understand it. Like I didn't understand because nobody had ever done anything like that. Nobody had ever seen a leak like this. So talk, just briefly talk about the leak. What was it they had? What was it that was so spectacular? 11 million documents. What were in the documents that caused this? I, I understand close to 300 reporters, up to 300 reporters worked on this. So what were, what was, what's the, uh, the template of the Panama paper? So it's basically documents from a law firm in Panama called Mossack Fonseca. And it's a law firm that had gained an international reputation for setting up companies for the wealthy, largely the wealthy who want to move money offshore. Like shell companies. 
Sure, companies, uh, yeah, all forms of companies, um, with and, and set them up in such a way so 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 that they were able to move money offshore, not pay taxes on it, avoid their national tax coffers, and avoid any scrutiny because their names wouldn't wouldn't be on the the on record, right? So there would be straw man directors. Um, we found one woman who worked like a like a law clerk at this law firm, who on record was the director of hundreds, maybe thousands of companies. Wow. It's ridiculous. Wow. She's a, a low-level law clerk, but she was effectively running a battery of, of hundreds of companies around the world. So it was a, an entire fiction. It was a, a, a fascinating, complex uh, array of any, docu- any document you can imagine. So from passports, to uh, memos, emails, correspondence between the the real owners and the company, uh, Moslek Fonseca, their lawyers, their representatives, um, money transfers, bank drafts, like you name it. And it was all ultimately searchable for us uh, behind a highly encrypted, protected wall. And um, only the reporters had access to it. And we worked away somehow for a year without being hacked or detected. And each reporter would sort of focus on their country. So obviously, I worked um, on Canada, and we identified, you know, hundreds of Canadians that were in there. We ultimately had to make some decisions about who we were going to look at. But it was totally unlike anything I'd ever seen to 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 see before you on on your computer screen this kind of information like sort of the proprietary hidden documents the 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 signatures from wealthy canadians signing um the the creation of corporations in which they're saying that they will not be named that they pick you know people they don't even know whose names are on their companies and then the movement of wealth that flows from that so this is all money coming from canada ending up in a, a bank account in panama or one of the other tax havens, utterly fascinating. And, you know, it's since then, you know, there's been a number of similar leaks and it's become again, kind of a beat for me. Like I just did one recently on the, uh, the Island of Jersey. We had another leak completely unrelated to this that showed us behind the scenes of a number of Canadian companies that um, were involved in a very complex uh, layering of corporations offshore from one jurisdiction to the next to the next and can trace the money. And, you know, the extent to which this happened, like who knew, nobody knew about this. Nobody knew about this because nobody could get these documents. These are documents that are hidden in places where the law says that they can never be disclosed. And for us to get copies of those, it, it was it was walking on the moon. Yeah, and just so everybody understands, where I came from this is, you know, paying taxes annually. Our taxes are higher because of people like this because they're not paying taxes. So we have to make up the difference. And we're talking billions among billions of dollars in taxes here. Like even in just Canada, uh, these, uh, I guess, the rich that are hiding this affects all of us in the long run. When, you know, the people that are paying taxes. This is what... This is what I I think people don't really understand is that this is money that is not being collected to pay for hospitals and daycares and bridges and roads, right? But we're paying, we're going to make up the difference, you and I. 100%. 100%. 
those who are most equipped to contribute to the collective are those who are most equipped to use the tools through facilitators and law firms and offshore um, uh, you know consultants to, to, to not pay so this is the great irony in, in uh, when it comes to offshore tax evasion is that these are the wealthy that that are that, that should be contributing yep. and they're paying in, in many cases we found incredibly wealthy people paying way less tax than I was. <laughs> No, it's no. It's, I I know a lot of the stories behind that. Now, during your investigation, especially in your over in Europe, you had some, you know, some moments that you were concerned about. I mean, there are some bad guys that did not want this information to get out. Yeah, there were some scares during that. Um, so when we when we got to the point where we all started reaching out and, and making phone calls to people, because we have to put all of this to the people we're writing about, right? We can't just write this. We have to gather the, in, the information and the evidence and put it to people that we intend to name in the stories. So at some point we had to start doing that. And so at that point, the cat was out of the bag. Like everybody was aware of what we had because we were telling them, we, got, we have these records, it's been leaked to us. Here's what they show. We intend to write a story about you and your company. And here's what we know about it based on these records. And here's a copy of the records so you can see them. So you know that we're not making this up. So it was completely transparent. But of course, alarm bells were going off at that point. So everybody who we approached was calling their lawyers and everybody, I don't know what they were doing, but they were clearly putting the word out. And I think a number of us have, have stories to tell, just strange stories. Like nobody, nobody that I know, you know was attacked or anything. There were, um, but man, I remember we were in London and it was, it was a big meeting of the journalists and we were working on some stories. And so we were in London, UK, and um, we, we decided we'd meet for, for dinner. And so I remember sending a note to the group saying, you know what, why don't we meet at this pub at such and such a time? And I never heard back. So I ran into a, a colleague of mine from the Star in the lobby of the hotel, and I said, like, nobody ever got back to me about that. And he said, yeah, yeah, they got back. They sent a note back and they said, we're meeting. I said, I never got that email. So I checked and I didn't, it didn't come in. And then I started checking other things and there's a whole bunch of emails that I had missed. And then I, I couldn't figure it out. So I thought, oh, there's a problem with my email. Maybe because I'm overseas or something. And then one thing led to another. And so we're having dinner. And then two or three other journalists mentioned, it's weird that their emails are down. Anyway, long story short, we quickly figure out that all our emails have been hijacked, or at least a bunch of us. And this is my personal email, not my Toronto Star email. This is my personal email. And so we're walking along, we're figuring this out, and then all of these weird messages start appearing and disappearing. And, and at one point, my entire mailbox had been completely deleted as I'm walking down the street at Oxford Circle. And so we all like ran underground into the subway, shut off our phones pulled batteries out where we could and um, and just kind of like <laughs> huddled together, try to figure out like we're clearly under attack. So they know that we're here. And ultimately there was a bit, we did investigations in it. We handed our phones over to IT and it was Russian. There was, there was Russian hackers who had figured us out and um, had created placed malware in our phones and were surveilling us and our movements. 
So that's why we sort of hid <laughs> in some way away from a cell signal for a while. And there was a, several other things uh, technically that we, um, in terms of being hacked and things like that. I mean, I, of course, this is small potatoes relative to some of the attacks that journalists face, but it was surreal. It was, it was, it was kind of, it was surreal to know that, that it was out there and that the bad guys kind of knew what we were doing and they were watching. That was, it was, it was a fascinating ride. Now the first publication or newspaper that got the tip from the original source was in Germany, right? Right. It was a German. Yeah, that's right. Now the source, we'll call it the greatest deep throat ever has never been identified. Correct. No, just John Doe. He did write a kind of a, a treatise explaining why he did it, which we published. And, and essentially what he says is that he, he, became aware he had, he's in a position to have access to these documents obviously that he took them to authorities before he came to journalists in several countries and um you know didn't didn't get i didn't know that real response and um it was an it was an act of, of personal outrage effectively a righteous indignation that he saw this going on and the fact that nobody was doing anything about it there was no oversight there was no international collaboration among law enforcement to address it. And uh, ultimately, the only step left for him was to, to go public by approaching journalists. And, and wow. you know, he's triggered in, in many ways, kind of a, you know, the cards falling because several others, there's been probably a dozen more cases now of people that in, similar to him, who are in possession of this kind of information who have come forward and essentially emulated what he did, you know, and I, for what, and, and many people have differing views about that. Obviously my view as a journalist, of course, is um, that he is the highest form of humanity. He came forward at no personal gain, uh, all downside, no upside for him and brought to public's attention information that had never been known before in a way that affected sweeping global change for the better that has impacted millions of us. And to clarify, you say him, but we don't know if it's a male or female either. And obviously, they want to stay anonymous because there's a, there'd be a huge mark on their back. I mean, there's just let alone oh, as soon no as the doubt. Russians are involved. I mean, and who knows else? Now, just to finish off, taking down some very powerful people. I think the Prime Minister of Iceland, I think uh, David Cameron was involved. Um, it's taken down some pretty big players out there uh, globally. Yeah, Prime Minister of Pakistan, there was huge... Uh, you know, I mean, pick, pick a sector of industry, FIFA officials, Olympic yeah. officials. Uh, it was sweeping uh, and incredible celebrities. Um, I, I mean, it, we, it, it was, we had to sort of decide, like, what do we publish and not publish? There were so many names, some of them household names, some of them very senior political names. It was a smorgasbord of, of, of wealthy, powerful people around the world. Well, listen, my friend, uh, as always, fascinating stuff. You've, you've done such a good uh, job at what you do. I've always been impressed with it. I really want to thank you for joining us and giving your insight. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. This is Copfather. And anything you want to let us know, uh, info at copfather.com. Send us a message, anything you want to talk about, any tips. And uh, I appreciate you joining us. Thanks, everybody.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.